0: Michael McRae here from Kiko Roundtable. Uh, sorry for the interruption in your feed. We had a very interesting discussion with Paul Zemninski. He's a diamond analyst. Uh, that was earlier in the month. There may have been some audio gremlins that uh, prevented us uh, from sharing the audio with you, so we just wanted to reprise it and then drop it into your feed. Uh, we did cut uh, the beginning of the podcast just because of the news is uh, dated. Again, this is a conversation that we had with Paul Zemninski talking about the diamond market. Please enjoy. Paul. <laughs> What is the diamond supply picture?
1: Yeah, so maybe just to kind of, you know, as a preface to the current situation, um, to to kind of inform those that don't maybe cover this space that closely, diamond prices hit an all-time high in the first half of 2011, and that was um, driven by curtailed supply following the global financial crisis. At the time, the Chinese jewelry market uh, was growing rapidly, and then stores in China were buying diamonds to stock new stores. Um, but those high prices at the beginning of last decade spurred new project development, which led to supply, um, you know, hitting the market, you know, in the subsequent five to seven years and, um, supply hit a a high watermark in 2017 and, and the market became, you know, oversupplied and that limited diamond prices, but now we're seeing, you know, the opposite happen where, you know, years of, of weak prices has resulted in almost new supply in recent years um and now when legacy mines close like Rio's Argyle mine in Australia there's virtually no new supply to re- uh, to replace that so um so you know for context last year diamond supply you know fell to under 120 million carats and that was the lowest since the 1990s and um it's
2: 25% lower than that
1: high watermark mark in, in 2017 Paul
2: well, Harris uh, I want to sort of perhaps try and create a a tenuous link here to sort of battery minerals um, because. A lot of minerals are finding applications, or trying to find how they can have applications in the battery space. Um, to what extent, or not, is something similar happening in the diamond space? Um, is there any move for sort of diamonds to be part of, you know, solar collectors or something like that? You know, sort of. And I'm thinking about, you know, James Bond films in the past. We had a satellite right. space full of diamonds to the super high power laser beam. Um, you know, is there a role for diamonds in this space?
1: Yeah. So I think this is a very good question. So the, the chemical properties of diamond make them ideal for lots of, you know, high tech applications, whether it's, you know, quantum computing or, um, you know, heat sink devices, lasers, you know, nuclear batteries, you know, there, there's a long list uh, you know, of, of, technologies that would do very well with diamonds. Um, but this is where the you know, the whole, you know, movement of lab grown diamonds, and, and this is a, a very, you know, it could be a lengthy discussions. We won't get too, too, into a deep here, but you look at the emergence of lab grown diamond technology. And I think that's going to impact most people, not as, as, as lab grown diamond jewelry, but as, um, you know, um, and, uh, you know, a, a, you know, a, an application and, uh, you know, technological devices that people use at some point in the future. So I think we're probably, you know, at least 10 years away from seeing, um, you know, diamond use in in these devices. We have to get, you know, the, the, the the quality has to improve the, um, scalability of production has to improve and prices have to come way down before. I think we see them in these mainstream technologies, but I think, um, we we will see that eventually, but it's going to be supplied by that synthetic diamond market, not the natural diamond market.
0: Uh, okay. Neil, so can I just told you? Oh, sorry, can I just hold for a sec right now as well? Too, um, I do want to get into synthetics and I do want to get into alternative side, but um, could we just kind of set uh, the table right now uh, where we currently exist uh, within uh, the diamond market? So, it's just, uh, I just want to make sure that we cover it first because it's been such an interesting year. So, you talked about uh, the falling away of supply, and then also we saw some significant supply cuts uh, into uh, the pandemic uh, just because uh, the uh, retail space was just beaten up. So. You saw, for instance, like El Rosa, for instance, that was uh, cutting back uh, on its uh, production numbers. Um, can you uh, bring us up uh, right now, Paul? Um, you know, I, I have seen that there has been gains. and have been looking at, for instance, what's been happening at Lucara. You know, you've seen that uh, these people have kind of bounced back to a reasonable amount. But what's the current demand picture right now? How uh, rosy is it looking just for natural diamonds, Paul?
1: Yeah, so I think the important takeaway is now when we look at, you know, the impact of the pandemic, um, diamond and hard luxury, um, you know, material luxury has done extremely well because people aren't spending money, you know, on experiential luxury like travel, dining out that sort of thing. And when you look at, you know, the, the biggest economic takeaway from, from the pandemic, the way I see it is all the stimulus, all the, you know, the monetary policy, what it's ultimately doing is it's, it's, further increasing that wealth gap. So people that own assets, you know, are doing very well. Those that don't have, you know, own assets are, are, are doing, you know, poorly. Um, and when you look at the demographic that buys diamond, it's, uh, um, you know, it's a demographic that owns assets. So the demographic is wealthier than than they were, um, and then they have, you know, the, the, this money from, um, you know, what we're seeing in the market right now. And they're, you know, aren't, you know, spending that on travel, they aren't spending it on these experiential items. So diamonds have done extremely well. And to try to maybe to, to, to provide, you know, some context, if you look at signature Jewelers, it's the largest jewelry company in the U S the U S represents half of global diamond demand. They've raised sales guidance three times so far this year. So I've never seen anything like that before. So the U.S. market's very strong. Uh, the Chinese market led the recovery last year. It was the first market to open up. Um, so when you look at you know the U.S. and China, the two primary markets are both doing um, very well at the moment. And uh, when you look at you know the supply demand you know situation right now, it's it's been very favorable for prices. And you know rough diamond prices are up um, about twenty percent year to date um, based on my
3: proprietary index. Uh, Niels? Um, so I just had, I actually had two questions, uh, but I want to, uh, the first question I wanted to ask is, you know, like, okay, so consumer demand is, you know, uh, sort of driving prices. How does the, the, the diamonds compare, you know, like th- this, this, um, alternative asset class compared to, you know, gold and, and silver and stuff like that. Like, is it, is it, comparable and also to like, you know, just the, like, what's bigger, what should we pay attention to is, is it consumer demand or is it industrial demand? Because there actually are a lot of industrial uses for diamond, you know, drills and, and medical uh, stuff like that. So, but I'm just sort of wondering, i um, sort of two broad questions, but um, yeah, just you, you sort of your thoughts on, on, you know, people taking advantage of, of diamonds as this wealth preserver
1: yeah so I think the first question looking at you know jewelry demand versus industrial demand, it's important to understand that you know ninety nine percent of natural diamond demand is uh is jewelry demand um so when you look at you know the synthetic you know diamonds that are used and whether it's construction or um, you know, other abrasive applications, almost all of that is supplied, um, with synthetic diamonds. Most of that's produced in China. And then when you look at the, you know, the higher tech applications, again, this is almost all supplied, um, from the synthetic diamond market. So when we're talking about natural diamonds, we're talking about the jewelry market is what drives it. Um, I think you bring up a, a really good question, you know, as far as diamonds being a mainstream investment vehicle, I think that the key here is you have to look at them, um, you have to look at them um, as something that they're not, which is a fungible asset. And, you know, an ounce of gold is an ounce of gold for all intents and purposes. It's understood to be 0.999% pure. We know what the market is 24 seven, you know, with diamonds, there's thousands of different categories, depending on the size or the quality or the color. Then you have rough and polished diamonds. Um, so there's all these, you know, individual markets. There's thousands of them. So there are complications that come with regard to turning into a liquid, and, and you know investment product because of that um but but niels i think you actually wrote a, a good piece on this i think it was a year ago i think you actually interviewed me for it but there's a company out there um that's trying to make diamonds fungible by grouping them into fixed batches on you know on, on you know based on the same rarity and the same value and uh cormac kenny he's the one behind the company it's uh, the company's called the diamond standard he's a he's a smart guy he has a tech background he's from outside the diamond industry and he's taking a very, you know, objective technical approach to this. And I think it's one of the best attempts I've seen to make diamonds, you know, mainstream investable product. And, you know, he's been very you know, persistent with his approach to make this work. I think he has the right institutional investment, you know, relationships, um, you know, and I think there's a good chance that he could make this you know, product, you know, successful. I think there's, you know, been $15 million raised so far. He's raising $50 million more. Um, I think it's the kind of thing where if we get, you know, enough, Investor, per, you know particip- um, participation. I think, you know, the liquidity could, you know, get more liquidity, and that, you know, could ultimately result in, you know, a mainstream investment vehicle for diamonds, which could eventually lead to, you know, a, a future product or an ETF. Um, and I think this would would really help diamond prices. It would bring a, a brand new, you know, piece of demand to diamonds. Right now, you know, as I said, ninety nine percent of you know, our, our diamonds are, are bought as jewelry. So it's, um, you know, it's typically only been those very high end, the rarest, the fancy colored diamonds that have, you know, been bought as an investment. Um, you know, and I'm talking the ones that are worth hundreds of thousands of dollars and millions of dollars. So, um, so, if, you know, if we can get to the point where, you know, the um, the more, you know, mainstream bread and butter diamonds become, you know, a, you know, mainstream investable product. I think it would, um, it, it would be very good for the industry and it would also further differentiate, you know, the perception of natural diamonds from lab created diamonds because nobody's going to make a, you know, lab diamond investment fund. So, so in general, I think it would be good for the industry at large. And I think there's been some interesting progress, you know, in, in the last couple of years there.
0: Paul Zemninski, Paul Harris did have a question, but uh, just one thing I just wanted to add uh, that um, you can comment more. It's the larger stones, which, uh, you know, that are non industrial, which are really most uh, meaningful to uh, these diamond producers.
1: Right. So when you look at the volume of production, the majority of the volume is going to be those smaller, lower quality stones, but you're absolutely right. It's that, you know, the engagement ring, the, the diamonds that, you know, polish into a, you know, a one carat solitaire. Um, those are the ones that really move the needle for, um, the mining companies. And, you know, to, to kind of put that in context, you look at a company, Petra diamonds in South Africa, they just sold a 39 carat blue diamond for over forty million million, one one stone. Um, so, I mean, it's a very unique, it's an interesting market because of that. Sometimes you can get one of these, you know, mid tier producers produces um, you know, one or two um, diamonds that are worth a hundred million dollars. Right. So um, it is kind of a, a bumpy revenue stream because of that, but it's also kind of what makes this industry unique.
0: Paul Harris.
2: Um, just a sort of clarification really so when you're out exploring for diamonds you're looking for you know the ideal you're looking for the gem quality diamonds and and i guess when you're in production you get gem quality and you get non-gem quality and so those you just sell into into the industrial market
1: right so the industrial natural diamonds are strictly a byproduct it's definitely the you know the gem quality you know as michael was referring to so the larger gem quality stones that really what make the difference from a revenue standpoint. And, um, I guess, you know, you look at it as a, you know, price per ton, you know, how many, um, what's the value of the diamonds per ton, you know, what's, what's the grade. And, uh, and you kind of go from there and, you know, some, some mines have a higher grade, lower quality, and some have a very, very you know low grade, but very high valuable, um, average price per carat. So it kind of varies within the industry, but yeah, when, when we look at the natural diamond miners, it's it's strictly driven by the gem quality stones, um, that are sold for, for jewelry.
2: And do you get much of a, a bump when there's high industrial demand? Uh, for example, Michael mentioned that major drilling is having a, a bumper bumper time at the moment. Obviously, uh, diamond drilling uses diamonds, so um, presumably there's increased demand for industrial diamonds for the diamond drill bits. Does Does that drive pricing up or? You
1: would You would think so, but it's it, it, it's basically you know non-material. So to kind of put that in context, if you look at you know the average gem quality diamond, it's going to sell for a hundred dollars or over a hundred dollars per carat the, the industrial quality or like a dollar a carat. Um, and to put that into context, you know, there's global production will say be 130 million carats of natural diamonds this year, 40% will be gem quality. Um, something we're talking, you know, well under hundred million carats of gem quality produced annually, but the Chinese will produce 10 billion carrots of synthetic industrial diamonds. So completely different markets. And and again, when we look at the natural diamond companies, it's the industrial diamonds are strictly a byproduct and it doesn't really, you know, move the needle, even if there if there's good demand for them.
3: Thank you. Niels. Um, I guess like, I I know, I gotta admit, I know very little about the diamond industry. I, um, I was actually going to ask you a question about, you know, that article, you know, like where are we at sort of with, with this pricing, but I wanted to ask like, how much like is pricing, how much does that have to do with, with marketing as well? Like, I guess, you know. Uh, back in the day, it always used to be, you know, clarity, you know, you want a clear diamond and now, you know, they're marketing chocolate diamonds and uh, pink diamonds and, and yellow diamonds. And so like, how much of it is, is just marketing?
1: No, that's an astute uh, observation. I think it's, it's very, very important to understand. It's a, it's a luxury product. First and foremost, marketing is the key, if not the most important part of the puzzle here. Um, and I, you know, again, we talk about, you know, lab diamond versus natural diamond. And I think ultimately it's going to be a, you know, a marketing battle. And I wouldn't bet against the natural diamond industry. Now it's important to note that everybody's familiar with De Beers, the diamond is forever campaign. That was that, that campaign was kind of, um, transitioned into a more De Beers brand centric campaign, um, probably around, you know, 2005. And the industry actually went 10 years without a generic diamond marketing campaign. And I think. it it had a notable negative impact on on demand. I think younger generations have a different perception of diamonds than previous generations. So the industry kind of, you you know, took note of this and, Um, the large mining companies came together. It was, you know, 2016, 2017, and formed an entity called um, the Diamond Producers Association. It's now called the Natural Diamond Council, but it's an organization to reinitiate generic marketing. And that's probably, you know, possibly the most important thing going on in the industry right now. And I think, you know, you bring up the most important point that I think is probably most understood about this industry, but you really could, you know, this is an industry where you could throw money at the problem. You can create demand. If you're a copper producer, you need, you know, an infrastructure project in China. Right. But with diamonds, if, if, if you can market it the right way and market it successfully and you have a big enough, budget to do that um you know historically it's it's had a notable impact on diamond demand and i think we're just a few years into this new campaign um but i think it's going to have a notable impact um on demand you'll see in the new james bond movie coming out the natural diamond council spokesperson is the new bond girl um i don't think that's uh that's uh that's an accident so i think you're going to start to see diamonds marketed the way they were kind of in the heyday
3: Sorry, I just All like Harris. to point out that we've mentioned Bond, James Bond, twice in this podcast. We've got an entire like year without mentioning mentioning uh, James Bond, but now we've done it twice in one podcast. I think that's. That's special. And
2: and, and then the cultural references are going to continue. Um, When I was in business school 30 years ago, our marketing textbook was by uh, Dr. Philip Kotler, the principles of marketing. And one of the the famous examples he talks about there, I think it's from the 1920s or 30s, something like that was specifically about diamonds. And how how did the diamond companies, I think it might've been De Beers or or Tiffany's, how did they move diamonds? They yanked the price up to make them even more exclusive. And then they started flying off the shelves.
1: Yeah, it's a different different structure now, but, um, but but again, it's it's you know diamonds are the you know the highest end luxury product, and I think the industry ran into a problem in recent years where the market was oversupplied, and like we were talking about before, I think what we started to see was you know mining companies started to sell these smaller, lower quality stones that in the past would be relegated as industrial quality diamonds, but they started selling them as kind of low priced you know jewelry, and and I think it kind of ruined the allure. And I think the industry is finally taking note of that now. And I, and I think it's very important to market it as the highest end premium product. And that's, that's when the, when when the, you know, when the industry does best. And I think, you know, we're, we're kind of headed back to that direction.
2: So so when the industry does find a market one of these let's say 30 carat stones like the one you mentioned um and for you know multi-million dollars um, does that help pull the price up because it refreshes in everybody's minds like wow these things can be very rare they can be very beautiful they can be very amazing hey let's spend lots of money on diamonds
1: Absolutely I think um I think the big stones uh, sell the small stones for sure and uh, and and the Beers actually through a consortium bought that that diamond so they probably are going to use it you know Uh, you know, to market, you know, the larger natural diamond industry. But I think that's a really, really good observation there. I I think that's definitely the way it works.
0: What is the state right now uh, with uh, synthetic uh, diamonds, uh, Paul Zimninski? So um, you had an interesting chart um, going back, and I think that you were looking at the strength within uh, synthetic diamonds, just looking at uh, what the price is. Um, You know, if you see uh, they're demanding uh, higher prices, um, I believe that is. then that shows that uh, there's more value or the customers perceive more value from the synthetics
1: yeah so i mean there is a, an, I would say a novelty associated with them right now but it still represents a you know a fraction of the diamond market i you know estimate that you know lab diamond jewelry represents you know maybe a, a mid single digit percentage of, of global diamond demand um, you know i i think I, I think we kind of touched on this before but at the end of the day i think it's gonna it's gonna ultimately come down to to marketing and i think the lab diamond industry is going to have to compete with the natural diamond industry in a marketing battle. And I'm not sure if I'd bet against the natural diamond industry. Um, and I think when you kind of just look at, you mentioned prices, I think that's another important thing to acknowledge. And the reality is, you know, lab diamond, it's a, it's a manufactured product. The natural diamonds are a non-renewable resource. So they're, um, you know, completely different, you know, market fundamentals of the product from that standpoint. Um, and if you look at pricing, so say it's been maybe five years since there's been wide stream, you know, you know, widely available, um, availability of, of, of lab diamonds. And the price has come down from maybe a 10% discount to natural diamonds. Now they're, you know, you know, in some cases, 70, 80% discount to natural diamonds, and that's only in a few year span. So, um, and, and again, I think that's a function of the fact that it's a manufactured product. I mean most of these companies are getting to the point where they can produce, you know, the size of the diamond they want, the quality of the diamond, they want the color they want. Um, so it's a, a completely different, um, you know, you know, you know, fundamental product from a, from a natural diamond. And I think that's going to kind of continue to play out that way. Um, so I think most lab diamonds will be sold as fashion jewelry, lower price fashion jewelry, and it's, it's going to be in a different, you know, product category from higher priced, you know, fine, jewelry, which is kind of where natural diamonds lie. And then you'll have some companies that do a very good job, you know, you know marketing and branding their their lab diamond, and they can get a premium for it. But I think the large majority of the market is going to be, you know, low priced, um, you know, fashion jewelry once this plays out. Uh,
0: Niels, I Niels, to see a question, but I just want to follow quickly onto that, Paul. Um, I, I, I still wonder though, um, <clears throat> there's been Um, there's just been this huge uh, upsurge right now with uh, environmental social governance. And, uh, you know, it's something that uh, when you have like uh, something with copper or uh, nickel, um, you know, these are needed uh, metals for industrials, but uh, you're talking about when you have a natural diamond, and uh, this is something where somebody's making rather an aesthetic choice. Uh, The headlines that come across, I think, about uh, Meghan Merkel, for instance, was uh, spotted wearing a synthetic uh, diamond as well. And I also kind of get the feeling that... um, diamonds, uh, the market has been, how would you say, kind of doing some catch-up, uh, just regarding, uh, you know, uh, burnishing its, um, environmental credentials.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think this is good. It's going to keep the diamond industry, you know, on its heels. And you mentioned Meghan Merkel, but her engagement ring is a, is a natural diamond from Botswana. So, um, you know, you know, there's always going to kind of be that, that, that back and forth, but, um, you know, you know. At the end of the day, I think the natural diamond industry has has a real good opportunity here. When you look at what diamonds have done for the country of Botswana, they have public education, they have public health care. The country actually owns a percentage of the the, the De Beers, the entity. Um, They've done very well with diamonds. So there are good stories out there. There's others like that. Um, De Beers is working in Sierra Leone where they're actually building infrastructure for artisanal miners. Um, it's a nonprofit initiative for the company, but they actually just said um, in the next sale, so in a few weeks, they're actually going to be selling um, diamonds from that initiative to their, you know, their their contract buyers for the first time. So there's a lot of things going on in the industry, and I think they've been going on in the background, but I think now with kind of you know, the, the momentum and, and ESG publicity, I think the industry is finally starting to kind of get the message out there. And, and one thing that's unique about diamonds, I think maybe one of the most interesting ESG initiatives in the space is um, you know, diamonds are found in kimberlite. It's an ultramafic rock and it has a unique property where ultramafic rock could actually pull CO2 from the atmosphere. So there's an opportunity where, you know, diamond miners could use tailings, crush the, the kimberlite tailings, really small, put a lot of surface area on them and get to the point where that kimberlite could actually pull CO2 from the atmosphere, trap it and store it. And I think there's, you know, a possibility where we can see, you know, carbon neutral or even carbon negative diamond mining at some point in the future, if, if this uh, plays out, and this is an initiative that the Beers is working uh, on with um, um, some academic institutions. Um, so that's kind of an exciting thing to keep, uh, keep, keep our eyes on, but it's also important to remember that diamonds, are you know, it's a very clean form of money. You just crush the the Kimberlite until the, um, you know, diamonds release. There's no chemicals, there's no cyanide. It's, it's, it's one of the, the cleanest forms of mining, um, so again, uh, I think these are things that the industry could probably do a better job kind of getting out from a PR standpoint. I think we're starting to see that. Um, but there's actually a lot of innovation happening in this industry. And I think there's, uh, been some, some very good ESG pro, uh,
3: you know, progress in the, in the last few years. Niels. Um, so the, yeah, the question I wanted to ask was, um, like the diamond industry has completely changed. I mean. Before it was pretty much dominated by De Beers. It's only actually only been like the last few years. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but maybe within the decade that the the market has really opened up and and De Beers has has lost its its uh, stranglehold on prices and and supply.
1: Yeah, a good point to bring up. So the, the transition took place It was probably early mid last decade. Um, you know, I would say that when you look at De Beers and El Rosa, that's the, the major Russian company, um, they probably still represent half to, you know, you know two thirds of, of global production. Um, so it's still a concentrated, but it's it's structurally different industry now. Prices are more driven by, um, you know, re- you know real time supply demand uh, fundamentals. Um, I, when, when I look at the change, I think that the key here is to, again, acknowledge that marketing piece that we talked about before where we went from, you know, the Beers having this huge, you know, generic marketing campaign to that essentially going away for 10 years. And, and I think reinitiating that that marketing campaign where the industry is coming together and, and saying we kind of have to kind of recreate that magic that the industry once had. Um, I, I think that's kind of the, the key takeaway here and it took some time. It would have been nice if that 10 years wasn't lost. Um, but I think the industry, um, kind of, kind of figured it out and kind of headed in the right direction now with that. Uh,
0: Paul Zimninski, any, um, uh, juniors, uh, in, uh, this in, any juniors in the space uh, that you're keeping an eye on?
1: Yes. Yeah, so I would say that when you look at greenfield work and diamonds, it's probably the lowest, you know, it's been in years. Um, there's been a, you know, I'd say a filtering of sorts, you know, in the companies that, that still remain at this point, they probably have something special or unique. Um, you know, the majors always have, um, you know, you know, some level of, of program ongoing, but as far as the juniors, um, that are active, they're few and far between. You can count them, you know, on, on essentially one hand, um, you know, as far as you know, what's going on now, um, North Era minerals, it's a Canadian explorer. They just completed a bulk sample in uh, Nunavut. With a partner, Burgundy Diamonds. It's an Australian company. Um, we, we look at uh, Star Diamond. It uh, completed a large bulk sample in Saskatchewan with Rio Tinto last year. Um, and then there's you know you have some some drilling and sampling going on. RJK Exploration in Ontario, Botswana Diamonds on the other side of the world. Um, there's a company called Newfield Resources is uh, developing a small but commercial mine in Sierra Leone. Um, but I, I think the important thing to note is there's only one real large new mine being built right now. It's in Angola. Um, the mine um, will be operated by the Angolan government's mining company partnered with Russia's Alrosa. Uh, um, but there, there's, there's very little work going on um, you know, relative to um, historic um, levels. And again, I think that's because prices have been so apathetic in recent years. But um, I, I think we are going to start to see new projects pop up if diamond prices keep going, um, again, you know, prices are up 20% this year. Um, so I think there's been a, a fundamental you know, shift in the fundamentals of the industry. Um, and I think, uh, when, again, when we look at the supply situation, um, I, I think there is need for, um, new supply down the road. So I think we will start to see, um, some new projects emerge. I just
0: wonder when we're going to see the first, uh, synthetic diamond bond girl. Uh, let's turn to our number of the week. Uh, Paul Zmaninski, we always start with a guest. What's your number?
1: Yeah. So I, I figured, uh, I had to pick, um, one related to diamonds here. So, so diamonds are a luxury product. It's a discretionary item. People buy it because it makes them feel good. Um, not because they have to, um, and people typically have to go to a jewelry store to buy diamonds. So, um, you look at the, maybe the way that brick and mortar retail is changing. It's quite interesting Um, with some of these luxury companies, you know, the, the, some of the the leaders they're they're focusing on, you know, providing a more, you know, experiential um, um, maybe say experiential activities in the store rather than maybe focusing on merchandise like in times past. And, you know, one of the high end commercial property developers it's, it's called Westfield. They said they expect that retailers will allocate, more square footage to experience them product by 2025 and they're calling it upside down retail so at some point in the future you know you you might go to a store to immerse yourself in the company's brand more so than to make an actual purchase and you know then you know the company's hoping at some point down the line you'll maybe purchase it online um and it's, it's not going to be like that with grocery stores but i think when we're talking about luxury boutiques you can expect uh something like that. We go to the store for, you know, interactive technology, you know, there's going to be movies playing, music, games, social media stuff. So I think that's kind of the direction we're headed. And, uh, and I think that was kind of interesting statistics. So by 2025, we might see more experience in, in retail stores and actual products. So, uh, so that's going to be one to think about.
2: Just a, some follow-up on that, Paul, I think to a certain extent that's already de- uh, being deployed because that's part of the success of Apple with the Apple stores and obviously Tesla with the Tesla stores, although Tesla then decided to cut back a lot of those. Um, but people go there just to fiddle and play, you not know, necessarily to buy. Absolutely. And as obviously part of their buying process.
1: Right, exactly.
2: Paul Harris. Well, me. Um, okay, I'm looking ahead to next week. So my number is 1,200. And that's how many participants the uh, the Precious Metal Summit in Beaver Creek expects to have, um, of which 50% of those are expected to be in person. They're in person, 50% logging in virtually, 1,200.
3: Niels, what's your number? Well, I, I'm actually traumatized from Paul's number because the, the Apple Store just scares the bejesus out of me. Um, this immersive idea, oh, my goodness. Um, so... I don't know have four nightmares I'm gonna have. no. Um, my number is 8.349 trillion. Um, and that's the that's the new record in um, uh, the the Fed's balance sheet. Uh, this is just going this is it just goes up 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 and you know, and we've been talking about tapering for the last since June it, you know but it feels like we've been talking about tapering for this entire year it's you know but it's the reality is that the balance sheet is just going up um Paul uh, Paul Z just really quickly um, so di- like diamonds versus gold um you know like is, is diamonds a good asset to buy as as a, a safe haven as it were that like, you know like is it what you know people would buy gold for?
1: Yeah. So again, I guess it kind of gets into you know some of the items we were discussing before. How do you actually access the market? So if you can not access the market, there is a different correlation to stocks, bonds, gold. So there's the appeal there. You know, historically, it's just been you know super high net worth individuals that had so much money they needed to find a different <laughs> place to park some of it, and then that's kind of where you see them buying you know a million dollar pink diamond. Um, so that's historically what it's been. We'll see. Um, how, how, kind of these new, you know, more fungible diamond products play out. But, uh, I, I, think the appeal is kind of the, 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 the different correlation than some of these other assets. So gold stick with gold <laughs> for now. Both. We'll, we'll see.
0: A uh, number of the week is ninety percent. That's ninety percent. Uh, BMO said is twenty twenty one forecast uh, for electric vehicle penetration it has been raised one hundred fifty basis points to seven percent. That's seven percent. That's up ninety percent year on year. Uh, and is saying that uh, the number that is forecast is just uh, overshooting expectations. But we've seen this all through the electric vehicle space, where you've seen uh, automobile manufacturers just saying that they're seeing that uh, there's a lot more demand for these electrical vehicles than they anticipated. That's it for us. Uh, my, you can reach out to us. You can follow me at Michael McRae. That's McRae with two C's. Niels is at Niels underscore C. Paul is at CGS 2021 Gold. And Paul Zininski, how would you like people to get a hold of you?
1: Yeah, so I have uh, a monthly industry report that I put out. I have um, um, uh, a rough diamond index where you can access for free. I have a podcast. You can find all about that uh, on my website. It's paulsininski.com. And I'm also on Twitter at Paul Zinitsky. Can you spell your last name for people? Sure. It's a Z like zebra, I am like Michael, M like Nicholas, I-S-K-Y. If you like what you hear, tell a friend
0: and don't forget to subscribe. Paul Zemninski, thank you very much for your time. Pleasure to be here. Thank you very much. This has been Kiko Roundtable. On behalf of Paul Harris, Niels Richardson, and Paul Zemninski, have a good weekend.